the, the book of Romans, as, as you would know, um, is a book where Paul writes a, a letter to the believers in, in the church in Rome. And in it, um, he's writing to a people that he has not yet seen. Um, so, so in many ways in this book, he is articulating to them his understanding and, and, and his belief um, in the gospel. They might have had, um, as would be common in his time, distortions about what that man Paul actually um, proclaims. So in writing this, he articulates um, the gospel in, in the longest um, um, way um, in, in, in the New Testament. The book of Ephesians, which I hear um, you're studying right now, is, is a beautiful articulation of that same gospel. One has said um, that if the book of Romans um, is the Himalayas of the scriptures, the, the, the highest mountaintops, then the book of Ephesians are the, are the Swiss Alps um, in all of its beauty um, and sweetness. Chapter 8 is an exceedingly important chapter in our understanding of what the gospel is. In chapter 7 of the book of Romans, he articulated to us what the problem we are in um, is. Namely, we have indwelling sin. We have indwelling sin. And because of indwelling sin, the law is unable to save us or to help us. We cannot look to the law. Why? Because when you mix indwelling sin with the law, the only result is sin increases. You can't just fix the problem of sin inside you by heaping a ton of rules. That doesn't help. You will we'll end up becoming very much like the Pharisees who end up twisting what the law actually says to make it something that they in their own strength are able to accomplish. And so they reduce it and they change it and when Christ comes, he exposes what they have done with the law. And, and he shows that indeed they who are pretending to be keepers of the law are breakers of the law. For they have abandoned the spirit of the law and only kept the letter of the law. In the book of Romans then, the gospel is presented as the only hope that man has. A work that God has done to redeem sinners. Not through what they are able to do, for the whole scripture has made it clear that we are weak in our flesh and unable to keep the laws of God, but God has acted through his Son to redeem us. A question that comes up in, in, in chapter 6 then is, is, what then shall we do? We who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, shall we continue to abide in sin? Does it no longer matter how we live? Because we have been made righteous. We have been justified. Not by works, but by faith. And Paul jumps into this um, theme that he runs all the way from chapter 5 into chapter 8. Where he articulates to us the, the life of the believer. And chapter 8 is going to show us how that grace that saves us, that forgives us is also the grace that empowers us and transforms us. Three points in this particular passage. One, the life of the Spirit is a life of no condemnation. No condemnation. Secondly, the life of the Spirit 
right, is this proclamation of our emancipation. Our emancipation. And then lastly, the life of the Spirit is the hope of our glorification. The first few verses here, Paul writes and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In chapter 7, Paul cried out a cry. You remember it? After articulating just how much he struggles with sin inside him, that which he wants to do, he does not do. Instead, that which he doesn't want to do is what he finds himself doing. And in desperation, he raises the cry, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, he calls it. Are you, are you feeling his struggle? Right? His desperation, his frustration? The answer is not the law. Just in case you're, um, you're wondering. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Not the law. The law will only bring further condemnation. Because when it articulates to me that which I ought to do, and in the flesh I try to do it, all I end up realizing is I fall way short of that which God has called me to. But there's an answer. It's a good thing that the book of Romans doesn't answer. With this desperate cry that's, and the question that's left hanging. The answer is what? Praise be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so here as he's opening up the chapter, he tells us that what God has done in Christ through the Spirit is allow we who are sinful, we who have fallen short of the requirements of the law, to be redeemed by the work that Christ has done, the work that the Spirit has applied, so that the conclusion for that very man who was crying in desperation, that very man who was aware of his weakness, of the power of indwelling sin, the declaration upon that man is there is therefore now no condemnation. How? How did this come to be? Because God has done something. Christmas. Christmas, that's what is done. Not Christmas with all the sentimentality, right? Right? Right, the, the, the malls already started to hang those Christmas lights. That, that's, that's not what God has done. I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with Christmas. Once I got married, I started um, softening on, on these things. Right? You have to adjust. But the Christmas that he's articulating in this section is, is he has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Isn't that Christmas? The incarnation is what's being articulated here. So that this man who was desperately crying in the weakness of his flesh, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Answer, Jesus. He will be born as a man to accomplish that which no man has ever done. He will live the perfect life that every one of us has failed to live. 
so that everything that the law has demanded, he will keep it to perfection. Every way in which we have failed, he has not. And he will allow that perfect righteousness most clearly demonstrated in his willingness to obey where we have disobeyed. His willingness to obey his father to the point of death, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. Yes, even the death on the cross. What kind of obedience is that? That's beautiful, perfect, spotless obedience. There is not an aspect of the law that he has not kept. And think about this. That perfect righteousness is what is offered to that man who was crying up in chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Jesus will. Because he will do that which, Paul, you have never been able to do. So that, Paul, your hope is not to figure it out and become in yourself perfect. That's not your hope. Your hope is to look to another one who is perfect. And in him to receive your perfection as a gift. Not one that you deserve, but one that has been extended to you out of his mercy and his grace. Because this is the chapter of the Spirit, really the point is caught in that very second line, chapter verse 2. Eh? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Because he has already articulated these truths about Christ, and even our union with Christ in chapter 5. But what he's emphasizing in chapter 8 is that all that Jesus Christ has done is potently and effectively applied to your heart. By who? By the Spirit. So that for the believer, this is not just mere theologizing, you see. This is not just merely articulating some fine points of, 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 of the gospel. For the believer, he experiences all of the benefits of what Christ has accomplished when the Spirit potently applies this to his life. And this is what we call regeneration. So that that work of justification is as a result of the whole Trinity singing in perfect chorus. So that that which God the Father willed and God the Son accomplished, God the Spirit applies to our hearts. And that's what we're told then. We stand here, we who are sinners, and this title hangs over our heads, no condemnation. God has worked on our behalf to grant to us this salvation. Notice secondly, that it's not just merely life-given. That we who were dead in our sins have now been raised up to life. It's not just life-given, it's life-lived. It's life-lived out. So he continues to say there, after verse 4, right in the middle. He says, we, in order that the righteous, of, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who? In us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But here's what Paul is emphasizing. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Please note the most important thing about this second point, our emancipation, is that you're not being asked to do anything. Have you noticed that? It's a very difficult thing for you to do. Because you're looking for, what have I done? Am I doing this? Have I done that? You know, you're not being informed of that. What you're being informed is what the Spirit has actually accomplished here. Instructions are coming in verse 12 and, and 13. Those are coming. So far, you're simply being told, listen, those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, those who were captured, prisoners in this body of death, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit apply their work to Him, and they who are dead become alive, next point, they live. That's really what's being said here. They, they don't continue to live in accordance to the flesh, to live enslaved to all the basic impulses of the flesh. They, they, they don't answer, yes, sir, to the beckoning of the passions of the flesh. They have another option now, you see. Please note, indwelling sin hasn't gone. Are we clear on this? In Romans chapter 5, it will describe this now as a war, right? Between the spirit and the flesh. But before the spirit quickened us, there was no fight. You remember this? You remember this? Used to sin and love it and boast about it. And, and be proud of it, right? And wake up the next morning and just yawn and say, oh, I can't wait for the next time, right? That's just to be you. What happens now, O oh Christian? Oh, something very different if you sin, isn't it? There's a grieving, there's a sadness, there's a sorrow, there's a guilt, there's a brokenness. There's a desire to not walk in that way anymore. To not speak or think or act in accordance to the flesh. What causes that? Dead people don't feel that. They don't know that. That's the Spirit's work. He has given you life. You know what it is. You desire to walk in the ways of the Lord. Oh, saints, be encouraged by that. Don't just merely be encouraged with, I'm not yet glorified, or the day that I will be finally and fully glorified. There are evidences of the Spirit's work in us even today. So that even that saint who has sinned can still point to the many different instances where he chose to walk according to a different principle, according to a different truth, the truth of God revealed in the Scripture. And that is what is being displayed here. The, 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 the life of death is described with all of its ugliness. The scriptures here are exposing really what sin offers to us. It's nothing good, is it? It, it, it deceives us. It deceives us with the things that it offers to us. I, I, I call it chocolate-flavored cyanide, isn't it? Oh, this is so sweet. Which type do you like? Dark chocolate, milky chocolate, but it's all just death. That's what it is. And the one who has not been brought to life He's totally caught up in that lie. Totally so. He totally believes it. He's one who is, if you so please, bound to the train tracks of sin and the flesh. And they are rushing him towards death and destruction. He's enjoying the ride though. 
Right? He's totally enjoying the ride. But, but, but we know, we who have been told the truth in accordance to God's word, that all that sin offers is death. This is speaking about today's life. It's speaking about our own souls, our own joy, our relationships with, with others around us. The, the one who consistently responds with a yes sir to the impulses of the flesh. Uh, uh, a desire to gossip about someone else because gossip feels so nice. Makes me feel so much better about myself because I am right now tearing down somebody else's character. And, and you yield yourself to that. Right? Um, the, 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 the temptation of covetousness. Of imagining that I do not have quite enough. If I only had but just a little bit else. Money, a house, a car, a job, a wife, a child. You mention it. Something that I do not possess. Perhaps something that my neighbor possesses. Oh, I would be finally and fully content and satisfied. And so I wallow in that covetousness. And it breeds all manner of other things. Right? Those who, who respond to their impulses of lust and think that they will find joy and pleasure, not in that which God has ordained or apportioned to them in their current state, but in something else, and they believe that that's where pleasure truly lies. Those who believe that indeed it's being accepted and finding affirmation from others, so I will do, speak, act in any way that I need to, so as to possess that affirmation, respect, honor, that I so desperately need from them. Those who constantly live their lives as slaves to the flesh in that way, they don't know peace, good people. Their lives are wrecked and ruined in a very practical today sense. Right? Today sense. They're not joyful content and happy, they have a veneer of something else that the world is offering to them. Something that is fading and fleeting, very temporary. Whose results are even seen today, you look at their relationships, they are decaying. It's very evident. You look at their souls, their own understanding of self. Everything is corrupted by sin. And you know what we're being told? We don't have to live like that anymore. We don't have to remain slaves to the flesh anymore. That slave king has been coming to our village and tearing everything up, leaving us broken, guilty and ashamed, destroying us. It doesn't have to be the case anymore because we have another king. And the idea here of the law of, he uses this funny phrase, doesn't it? All the way up there of the law of the spirit of life. That's the idea of a, of a powerful principle inside you. Because that's how the flesh functions. The flesh doesn't just merely tell you, hey, you know, come have this. There's, there's, a, there's almost like a will, a, 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 a draw, a very potent attraction that leads you that way. And now we are being told that those who have been caused to come alive have the spirit inside them. And the spirit is active and potently at work in them both to will and to work God's good pleasure, and it's pulling a different direction. And guess what? Those who have received life, you can see the evidences of that. They don't need to continue to walk and think and act and speak in the ways in which they used to, because they are now empowered from within to make a different choice. And they do. 
And in many ways, good people, I don't really know you, but I'm sure there's evidences of that all around us here. That's what you call the fruit of the Spirit, in other words. Not the fruit of awesome people. We like the fruit of awesome people, I tell you. We love it. You know, so we say, so-and-so is so much more awesome than so-and-so, right? Yeah, yeah, this is true. Right? But instead, in God's church, you know what this is? This is a value of very dry bones. Right? Dead people are not very impressive. If there's anything that they do that seems like life, it's because of what God did in them. And if it's not as a result of what God has done in them, it is not real. And it is not praiseworthy. So if there's anything praiseworthy, all glory, honor, and praise be to who? To God. And that's what we really want to celebrate. We don't want to gather and kind of start classifying like, this is the group of awesome, almost awesome, have potential to be awesome but are not. We don't have any hope for you guys. And then the church just kind of becomes like that. No, we come as those who are wretched sinners crying out in desperation with Paul in chapter 7. Oh, wretched men and women that we are, who can deliver us? And then we marvel, point one, can you believe it? All the sins represented in this room right now, it's amazing. It's a lot of people. Do you know the number of sins in this room right now? That's a lot. All of them forgiven. This is why we sing the kind of songs we sing, isn't it? This is why the call to worship and the scripture reading are all pointing us to one direction. But secondly, we start growing by thinking and acting in different ways. And you'll notice it all starts in the mind. They set their minds on something different. They don't hear the whistle and see the little advertisement and their hearts and minds all believe this must be true. I'm going to meditate on this. I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to acquire this. They start pursuing something different. And what do you mean by things of the Spirit? The passage and the very phrase is not very clear, but it would be folly for us to start thinking that things of the Spirit lie primarily in the realms of the mystical and the unknown and the superstitious. I don't know how appealing that is in this country. In my country, it's very appealing. But, but it would be folly to ignore the Holy Scriptures that have been inspired by who? By the spirits that are illuminated by who? By the spirits that are applied by who? By the spirits. It would be very ignorant of us to ignore the scriptures as we are pursuing. What are the things of the spirit, I wonder? Let me close my Bible and go pursue that elsewhere. He already spoke a lot of things. You remember Christ with, 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 with Peter? Right in Matthew, Christ reveals to them, I'm about to go die. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no, that's a very bad idea. I have a better idea. We, could, we have a good gig running over here. And what does Jesus say to him? Depart from me who? Ooh. That's a pretty heavy word. Is it really Satan? I mean, it's Peter. But Peter is talking and thinking like who? Like Satan, because not very long ago, Satan was talking to Jesus just the same way. Death? No. Don't do death. Do glory and power. I will give you all of the cities of the world. Peter sounds very similar to Satan, doesn't he? Depart from me, for you are not thinking about the things of God, is what Jesus says to him in that section. 
but you are thinking upon the things of this world. And how does Jesus push away Satan? What does he do? He quotes for him what? Scripture. Who led, who led Jesus into the wilderness? The spirit, the spirit. And here is Jesus fighting against thoughts that are satanic. You don't think, right, that covetousness is satanic, but that's exactly what it is. It drove my heart to very wrong places. And the way that he pushes back is by setting his mind on the things of the Spirit, if you so please. By pushing back using Scripture. That's what we need. Not only is life given, life is lived. The believer has been indeed set free. But lastly, you notice in this same section, that that life will never be taken away. Those who live through the work of the Spirit will never die. As the section is coming to an end, look at what he says here. Verse 10 he says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit will cause us to come to life when we die. The life that we have will never leave us. This is what it means for us to have eternal life. And this hope is everything. This hope is everything. You'll see as Paul continues in chapter 8, he will articulate this as basically the anchor and the foundation for the Christian. As he's facing suffering, as he's facing uncertainty, as he's facing sin itself, and all of the things that sin is saying, listen, you're going to live without this? Like, do you see how awesome this is? Do you see how much pleasure, honor, praise, power this is offering to you? What's the potency of the life of the Spirit? Total assurance and confidence that there is absolutely nothing that sin can offer to me in this world. As far as pleasure or goodness or praise or honor, that I will not receive 10,000 fold in the world to come. And that's the glory that is awaiting me. And the saint who is utterly confident that there is more to life than just this world, you look at the way they think and feel and act, it's a totally different life. And that life is empowered by the Spirit. It's the Spirit who has applied the work of Christ so that it can now be said there is now no condemnation. It's the Spirit that has applied that breaking of the chain so that that believer is acting and thinking in a different way than the way that the flesh is calling him to. And it's the work of the Spirit that gives to him hope that it doesn't matter how bad it gets in this world. As Piper says it, the best is yet to come. That will always be the truth. For the believer, it doesn't matter if he's at a mountaintop experience or at a valley deep experience. And with that type of unbreakable, unshakable confidence, the believer lives a very different life. In chapter 7 and verse 6, if you just turn your eyes there, you'll see what he called it there. Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is what he's articulating, the new way of the Spirit. What does that life look like? 
These are the three titles above that life. It's a life of the Spirit. No condemnation. Emancipation from that chain of acting always in accordance to the flesh. And lastly, this unshakable hope that yes, even when I die, I shall raise to newness of life. When Paul in the next verses speaks about putting sin to death by the Spirit, by the Spirit, it first and foremost needs to begin with these three things. I mean, the, the rest of the text, including the whole scripture, right, is going to inform us about what it looks like to fight sin by the Spirit, but it needs to begin right here. I can't start fighting sin, can't start fighting sin, if I'm not really sure that I have been justified, that I've been forgiven. A pursuit of sanctification that is really a pursuit of your justification is a powerless pursuit. When you are seeking to grow in holiness so that before God you can attain this position of I have no condemnation. Why? Because I've finally done this. I finally think and feel and speak and act in the way I've been trying to. No, that's not the power of the Spirit. Fighting in accordance with the Spirit has to begin with humbly on your knees receiving this declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. So let me ask you this morning, is that where you are? Is that where you are? Are you coming this very morning with more awareness of the sin that is in you than of the grace that is in Christ? That's a, a Richard Sibbs quote who says, such a beautiful little phrase, isn't it? There is more grace, there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. Right? Are, are you convinced of that this morning? Maybe you're convinced of it, but because of your pride, but because of your pride, you don't want to receive justification as grace. You actually are committed to earning it. And that's very possible. You can sing all the right theology, but in your heart of hearts, you are actually on pursuit, in pursuit of making yourself righteous. And you see that a lot with self-defense. A lot of self-defense is that. Uh, 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 Jesus speaking to a lawyer and, and, and speaking about the, the law, right? And, and the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And a little phrase there. And the, the lawyer seeking to justify himself asked, but who's my, who's my neighbor? Maybe that's the way you just do life. Well, well, really, I mean, it's not really that bad. I mean, it's not as bad as so-and-so. I mean, it's not like... And, and you spend your whole life there. That's not the life of the Spirit, good people. The life of the Spirit is, is one that's quick to acknowledge sin. In fact, to the contrary, it prays like David, Lord, show me if there be any wicked way that's in me. It, it heeds and listens, even to its greatest enemies. To say, you know what, let me think about that. I'll talk to my wife, I'll talk to my friends, I'll, I'll, I'll prayerfully seek to see if there truly is sin there. Because I would want nothing more than to run to the cross and to say, Father, forgive me for the ugliness of my sin that has been exposed. That's the life of the Spirit. Listen, it is such a breath of fresh air in a church when that's how the saints gather. When they gather to live in accordance with the Spirit, they are those who approach each other and God with a humility that says, we are those who are, uh, have indwelling sin in us. We are those chapter 7 people. We know ourselves. We're not here to, to speak about how good we are. 
But are you encouraged by the work that the Lord is doing in you? Maybe you come here this morning and you're so aware of the ways in which you are setting your mind on the things of the flesh. But you're absolutely not aware about the ways in which you are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's very likely. Please note again, in this section, it's not primarily a commandment to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. I think that comes especially in verse 13 when you're now putting sin to death. But right now, Paul is just articulating, those who have been given life, live life. That's all he's saying. Have you lost sight of the work of the Spirit in you? Are you just constantly burdened with guilt and shame? And not so much because you're not a Christian who has not been regenerated, but just because you have lost sight of the good things the Lord is doing. The progressive work that is actually growing you into that which he is going to complete one day. Have you lost sight of that? I I encourage you, do that this afternoon. Spend time thanking God. Thanking God for the ways in which you have changed. Maybe, maybe, Maybe start from where you used to be before you met Jesus. And ask yourself how that particular individual has changed when you compare him to this particular individual. And please, don't do the whole, I'm not really that bad, am I? No, you're actually really bad. Right? You're actually really bad. It's just, the, it's just that you who's actually really bad, the Spirit is actually doing a work in you, isn't it? Be encouraged by that. It's not all on you. That's really the good news here. You are not facing your sin just by yourself. You are facing sin with the Holy Spirit in you. Do you know it's interesting how the Bible begins and it says that the, the, the world being without form and void and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the water. It's quite interesting. Before the work of creation began, we're informed of how in that world that was void and formless, disorderly, the Spirit is hovering over it. And what's done was the Father... Right, has commanded things to be is a beautiful, perfect creation. Life, if you so please. Do you know with the second work of creation, that's exactly how it begins? With death, disorder, decay. But when the Father again wills His work, through the work that His Son has done, the Spirit is potent. He will accomplish that work. Are you seeing where it's ending? Glory! The Spirit will begin that work. He will empower that work. He will complete that work. So you, you, you have the plans, right, in God's Word about what He's doing in you. And you're beginning to see those few steps. Don't despise the Spirit's work in you because it still has a long way to go. Rejoice over every single step. Oh, look, that selfish individual who was so self-centered just did an act that can be characterized as self-sacrifice for the good of another. You celebrate that. Like, why did sister so-and-so do that? And pastor didn't even know about it? And the other people didn't even know about it? Just kind of walked over to the other side of the, of the hall and talked to that individual who's not quite a part of this community. And they're kind of more popular and well-connected, but they spent their afternoon pursuing somebody else who's not quite a part of the community as, as they are. And they just served them and loved them. Not because it was easy. might even have been a little bit more awkward. But they did it not because it was comfortable or easy, but for the good of someone else. Look at that. They just might be Christians. Isn't it? Because that's the kind of stuff that you're like, ah, this is evidence of the Spirit. What, what things are there like that? Would you make it your aim to encourage one another about those things? 
be the person who will have a magnifying glass. Not that looking at all the errors in this room this morning, amen? Because there's a lot of them, I'm sure. I can't see them. But I'm sure they're there. Just as so there she goes again. And there he goes again. You know, that's not your job. There's, there's someone who does that job quite well. He's called Diabolos, the accuser. Have you ever heard of him? The accuser of the saints. He, he drags the saints and when he stands before God, he's like, have you seen? Have you seen? Have you seen? That's what our job as Christians is it? We, we want to do the other job of saying, oh yeah, have you seen? Did you hear? Oh sister, you're discouraged? Are you not? Are you kidding me? You of all people are discouraged? Are you not seeing how the Lord is walking in you like this and like this? Like hawk-eyed, sniffing out evidences of grace amongst us. And then taking a bullhorn and proclaiming them. There's work going on right here. And giving all the glory to who? We advance God's work in this place when we act and think like that. And then lastly, keeping our eyes on eternity. Let's never lose sight of that. It's just incredible when you look at the New Testament. Like it's all about what it's going to be on the last day. There's just no hope or strength or encouragement for the saints that is disconnected from glorification. And we live in a world where we have lost total sight of what it will be like. Chapter 11 of, of, of Hebrews. The believer's posture is a posture of waiting in anticipation. We are pilgrims. We are exiles. And if you set in your own heart a determination to receive all your pleasure today, all your glory today, all your honor today, all your recognition today, there's no way you will walk in accordance with the power of the Spirit. There's no way. You will fall prey to the flesh because he offers instantaneous gratification. But the saint awaits with confidence that soon and very soon all the honor, glory, and praise is going to arrive when we are raised from death to life. I pray that these truths will aid us in experiencing a little bit more what this newness of life is.